0: Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10. On the insert, in your bulletin, I have the passage, uh, the majority of the passage there printed for you, and it is purposely laid out the way you see it. And you'll understand this as we walk through. When you're reading a poetic, prophetic piece of biblical literature, it can sometimes be difficult to follow the, the dialogue that's set up there by uh, the author, who is God ultimately writing through the prophet. And that's the case in this passage. I think this will help you, and you'll understand more why I separated it out. Basically, in this passage, we have God declaring uh, that he's bringing judgment upon Israel because of their sin and rebellion, and he's going to use wicked Assyria to do it. I mean, Assyria is no uh, winner in any way. I mean, they're, 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 they, they are notorious by this time in history for their atrocities, the way that they subjugated other nations and the brutality that they used. It was horrible the way uh, Assyria asserted its dominance and conquered people. God's going to use wicked Assyria to bring discipline upon Israel. And in this passage, there's a bit of a dialogue where God states what he's going to do. Then he gives insight to the mindset of the Assyrians. This passage provides for us one of the clearest pictures into the sovereignty of God into the will of god in heaven and what plays out on earth and it will open up a bit more of this consideration for us as we consider the whole of scripture's clear teaching on god's sovereignty now god's sovereignty and uh discussing attending ideas like his predestination his election his decrees uh American evangelicalism has not had a long love affair with such teaching. Now, it's historic teaching for the church. We see it over and over again come up and and be affirmed, God's absolute sovereignty. Uh, God being God is affirmed. Uh, But it's difficult for us in our individualism to hear this idea that God could be in control, that he is ultimate in this sense. We sing of his power as long as the power will help us with our will. But when we sing of the almighty power of God, really what we should be singing is that he is God. And he's called us to himself, and it's amazing. That is an amazing thing for any of us to be friends of God. He would have to be the one who makes us such friends. So this passage will open up this consideration about God's sovereignty and very closely related man's responsibility. Here as I read God's word. I'll interject just a few interpretive points as I read because it does demand us considering it very closely, and we'll go through the text again in a moment. But hear God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Isaiah 10, starting at verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he, Assyria, does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, this is Assyria speaking again, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kelno like Carchemesh? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? Now more perspective from God. Verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. More on Assyria, verse 13. For he, Assyria, says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Verse 15, the most important interpretive passage of our text. God speaking, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh, Father, as we have sung already, you are sovereign in all the affairs of man. No powers of death or darkness can thwart your perfect plan all chance and change transcending, supreme in time and space. You hold your trusting children secure in your embrace. Teach us of your ultimacy so that we might grow in our awe and worship and service of you, trusting you all the more. I pray this in Christ. Amen. It's really not likely possible to underestimate what we have revealed about God's dealings on earth in this passage. Uh, One Bible commentator says it rightly, Isaiah declares the coming judgment on Israel by means of this magnificent oracle of two sovereignties, the sovereignty of the Lord and the sovereignty of the king of Assyria. In so doing, he creates one of the Bible's central utterances about the relation between heaven and earth in human history. I think that it is common for us as people to think of God based on our own sense of right and wrong, or of fairness. When the topic of God's sovereignty comes up, it necessarily includes things like predestination, election, his decrees, his providence. And as I already already mentioned, American evangelicals tend to get uncomfortable. Just this week I had a talk with a pastor of a very large church in the area. Godly man, we agree on the essentials of the faith, the gospel. Uh, but he was intrigued because he doesn't spend much time with people who believe in the sovereignty of God the way I do. And he said, I just got to ask you, are you really, are you really a Calvinist? You really, you really think like that all of it, right? I'm like, well, explain to me what you mean by whether I believe in the sovereignty of God or not. And we had a lengthy discussion, and I kept asking for passages to show me where God isn't sovereign or where man can do something that opposes God's plan. It wasn't a long conversation as we kept going to various passages that showed quite the opposite. And I could sense what he was saying. That this is not a message that American evangelicals especially want to hear. It, it, it strikes against our Americanism. You know, we're independent. We like our freedom. We want to have a certain bit of our own control. I mean, we love that about life in general, and we don't want to admit that there is a sovereign or one ultimate over us. We're so keyed on what we think is fair. Well, true joy and real praise that will shape our lives and make our lives meaningful, it comes not by reconstructing God in our own image or according to the way we feel. Scripture will provide us with the truth. And even when it's difficult at first, it becomes something to behold and something that gives us contentment and joy and security. It gives us purpose. In this passage, we have some amazing realities given to us about the way things work. God will use a nation called Assyria, a nation of earth that opposes him, hates him, and acts in opposition to anything he would say is righteous, God uses this nation very carefully for his bidding. They will act out of their sense, and they own this. This is their responsibility. They they act out of their sense of power and sovereignty, and immunity. But at the same time, all the while, they are merely a tool in the hands of the sovereign God. They will act out of their sinful pride, And they will be held accountable for their sinfulness. God will use this nation to do his bidding, and he will hold them accountable. They will be responsible for their sinfulness and rebellion. They do exactly what they want to do. However, God is sovereignly directing it. No nation acts outside of God's sovereign control. Assyria felt it was sovereign on its own, but in reality they were constrained by God Almighty. Assyria, at the time of this conquest, felt invincible and unstoppable, and they looked the part. But Moyer, the commentator, says well, and reminds us, and reminds every nation on earth, reminds every individual, the Assyrian Holocaust, that's their campaign to conquer the world, the Assyrian Holocaust was not let loose on the world. It was sent, directed where it was merited, kept within heaven's limits, And in the end, Assyria was punished for its excesses. The Lord is sovereign, but his instruments are morally responsible agents. Every nation is subject to God, and every nation is serving God's ultimate purpose. That's profound. It's heavy, it's weighty, and it demands more study, but we will be introduced to it here. Isn't that a contradiction? Aren't there two different things in opposition? Not at all. Spurgeon was right to point out this dynamic and to give us some humility about the study of it. Spurgeon says, and I put the quote on your handout, that God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. It is just the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. Now, let's look at the passage before us. and You have the handout, and as I mentioned to you, i formatted it in a a way that will help you see whose thoughts are embodied in the section. You'll, You'll understand as we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility at the same time displayed in Isaiah 10. There's no question about God being sovereign, but there's also no question that man is responsible for his actions. And that should be the chief concern of all of us as the scripture teaches it. It's not about free will versus God's sovereignty. It's about our responsibility as it relates to a sovereign God. Uh, starting at verse 5, the oracle begins with God lamenting the whole situation in which he will, use a, he will use pagan Assyria to discipline Israel, a godless nation, to discipline a nation who is acting godlessly also. You see the exasperation in verse 5. Ah, Isra- uh, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands... Is my fury. Uh, The movement that they are making across the earth at this time, uh, that's the fury of God being used through them upon this godless nation, his people, Israel. Verse 6 Against a godless nation I send him, him being Assyria, and against the people of my wrath I command him. What a tragic passage to call his people, people of his wrath to take, spoil, and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. God using godless Assyria to punish godless Israel. Assyria's conquering and plundering of Israel is the will of God. Assyria's actions are governed and directed by God for his purpose. But that's not what Assyria thinks. That's not the way the nations progress. The nations don't acknowledge that they are tools in the hands of Almighty God. In fact, they... Confront God. They disrespect God. They, they don't acknowledge Him. They say it's of their own. Their, they are their own God. That's what they say to God. And God holds them accountable to this. While using them as tools, He holds them accountable for the rebellion against Him. It, why? Because He's God. It says in verse 7 But He, Assyria, does not so intend. So Assyria is not thinking like God's thinking with regard to its purpose. And his heart does not so think. The heart of Assyria is not turned towards the will of God. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not, few, not a few. So Assyria has in its heart to conquer and to dominate, not just Israel here for the purpose of God, but everybody. To subjugate everybody, to conquer everybody. Limitless imperialism is what a godless nation strives after and will go for if it can Verse 5 and 6 shows that God is using Assyria to conquer Israel. But in verses 7 to 11, we see what Assyria thinks. They are acting out of their own perception of sovereign power. They think very highly of themselves. Verse 8, for he says, are not my commanders all kings? In other words, I've conquered these nations before we even got to Israel. And we took their kings and made them mere commanders of our armies. Aren't we powerful? Isn't Assyria powerful? It needs no help from God. Verse 9. Is, is not Kelno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? Kelno, Arpad, and Damascus had already been taken by Assyria at the time of Isaiah's prophecy. And they're simply saying here, we took those places, we could take these other ones. Verse 10 as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols and this is a description of any nation that doesn't worship their gods whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria we took nations far more strong than Israel verse 11 shall i not do to jerusalem as her idols and her idols as i have done to samaria and her images samaria's in the north they've already taken the north or taking the north as this prophecy is unfolding and guess what Assyria is not planning to stop there. See, God has Assyria stopping there. That's his will for them. But Assyria is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. We're going to the south too. Because Assyria thinks that Assyria is God. And it acts that way. And nations will act this way. People will act this way. But all the while, it's God who is sovereign behind their actions. They can do nothing that God does not ordain. Now back to God's perspective in verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. He has a purpose. The north will be taken. The north will be taken and it will serve as a warning to the south where Mount Zion is, where Jerusalem is. And so when God's purpose is fulfilled in Assyria, he will like you take a baby wipe, wipe something off and throw it out. That's what he'll do to Assyria. Assyria thinks they're all that. Assyria thinks he's going to own the world. Assyria's going to keep going on and God's saying, no, you're going to do this and you'll be done. You will be done. That's the truth. That's the real perspective. That's the will of God. That's the will of God. That works itself out. Back to Assyria in verse 13. Simply a display of what's in the heart of the Assyrians, who will be tools of God. Verse 13, for he says, again Assyria, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I, for I have understanding. So his power and wisdom, Assyria claims for himself. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. The pride of Assyria, the will of Assyria the sovereignty of Assyria, as it thinks. Now, we don't often get to look behind the scenes of what an imperialistic movement is driven by. This gives us a picture of reality, that it's all according to the hand of God. Assyria brags of its wisdom and smarts, its perceived power and might, its plundering of Israel as if it's based on its own sovereignty and ultimacy. But back to God's perspective in verse 15, which is probably the most important passage for understanding at this point in the Old Testament now and in the the Scriptures, upholds us in every place. But it says it so plainly. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Think about that image. A lumberjack has an axe. The axe has a purpose. It's made a certain way. It has a design. It does what it does. But it cannot do what it does unless the lumberjack wields it. How foolish it would be for an axe, if it even could, to think itself superior over the lumberjack. It is worthless and useless and cannot do anything powerless unless the lumberjack wields it. Wields it, And here's a picture for all the nations. In all of us people, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? How foolish. Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. How foolish for this tool of mine to think that it can do its will. Assyria is the rod or the staff. God is the one who wields it or lifts it. And herein is revealed the truth about the sovereignty of God. Nations and people may think that they are acting out of their power and will. But in the end, they are merely tools for the Almighty. And furthermore, if they act with a sense of arrogance and rebellion against God, they will be punished. They will be held responsible. We will always be held responsible for what we do. It is never for us to say, in terms of God's sovereignty, well, I was preordained to do it, so therefore, if you can reason with that statement, realize that what you are assuring yourself of is judgment. That's the temporal reality, apart from what the divine decree is. And it's the height of foolishness for anybody to say that. Because God never lets sinful rebellion go without punishment. Verses 16 through 19, which I don't have on the insert, simply completes the prophecy about what will happen to Assyria once, once God is done using them to discipline Israel. It says in verse 16 of Assyria, Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like a burning of fire. And this is a picture of what will happen in just, uh, just a few years. Under Hezekiah, uh, God will send... A sickness from an angel or from his divine hand that will wipe out 185,000 troops. And it says in verse 17 the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The same nation boasting of itself and all it can do and how its commanders used to be kings and so on and so forth. And God says, in one day it's over for you. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In this passage, God declares his discipline on Israel through Assyria. At the same time, God declares his judgment upon arrogant and haughty Assyria. Now, lest we think this is an exceptional passage, that it's just one episode, one story, it's not meant to be a paradigm, or not meant to be a model, it's not normative or any of that, step back for a second and think now about even what you know from Scripture. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is a constant interchange throughout all of the history of redemption. This passage is not unusual or unique. Scripture's teaching on God's sovereignty is everywhere affirmed and bolstered. It's only man's innate sense of independence that makes us recoil at the idea of a sovereign predestining God. You might say that uh, the biblical picture of God's sovereignty offends our senses as American individualists. What we think of as freedom. David, a great king and conqueror, understood what his success depended upon. In Psalm 115, when he penned, by inspiration of the Spirit, Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. So we have this case of Isaiah 10, but there are many others in Scripture. Think of one that is familiar to you, the story of Joseph, where God preserves Joseph's life so that Joseph can preserve the life of Israel. But you remember how that story unfolds. Don't forget it. His brothers are jealous of him, and wickedly and evilly, they plot to have him killed. That's their will, their desire. What they want is him dead. Genesis 37 recounts, They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. I mean, they're responsible, clearly, for their murderous intent. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. His brothers conspired with all their power and all their wisdom to do something. And that's what people will do all the time. They think that they're doing it, they're getting away with it, or they're accomplishing something of their own will. Well, we know how God's providence works as he brings to pass uh, episodes in Joseph's life to the point of finding himself as the right-hand man of the most powerful person in the world. And because he's in this position, he's able to stockpile food that eventually his family will need to survive, and his family will bring forth Messiah. So he saves the lives of his family immediately, and then, by God's providence, keeps the seed of Messiah for all of us so we might be saved. That's God's providence working through the wicked intents of men to bring salvation and his purpose to bear. So, towards the end of his life, when the brothers meet up with Joseph, Jacob, the father, is nervous about what Joseph might do to them when he finds out that they are coming to ask for food. So Joseph is contemplating how will he handle this discussion with his brothers who sold him for dead. Jacob says to the brothers, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. They're responsible. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. And here is the key. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? What a realization for Joseph to have, for all of us to have. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil Against me. It was your will that evil be done. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The sovereignty of God and man responsible for his wicked deeds. And those wicked deeds, though, do not fall outside of the sovereign hand of God. And if that strikes you poorly at first, As you study it, it will begin to cause you to praise God when you realize what that really means and what it means if it's not true. So do not fear, Joseph says. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You know, we have the story of Joseph there. We have the story in Isaiah. But don't forget that picture of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in the person of Judas Iscariot. In the Old Testament, in Zechariah, among other places, the betrayal of Jesus, all the different aspects of Jesus' death for us are prophesied centuries before it happens. Isaiah, 700 years before. Zechariah, not that far, uh, 50 years less. And it even goes so far as to predict that the Son of Man would be sold out by 30 pieces of silver. It says in Zechariah 11, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as many wages as 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. This is a picture we know because the New Testament writers affirm it as such. A picture of what Judas will do the sovereign hand of God working to foreordain that Judas would do what he did, but then listen to what Judas says because he understands it right. In Matthew 27, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And listen to what Judas said. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Correct. Yes, it was ordained by God, and yes, you have sinned by betraying innocent blood. What is it? what is that to us see it to yourself throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple he departed and he went and hanged himself of course the ultimate picture of god's sovereignty and man's responsibility happens at the cross in isaiah 53 700 years before it says it was the will of the lord to crush him he has put him to grief When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's God's will that God the Son would die on the cross for us. Yet you know that the Romans were convinced that they put Jesus on the cross. And guess what? They did. And the Jews were responsible for setting up the Romans for doing so. And guess what? They did. And they are responsible. Because in Acts chapter 2, as Peter is preaching... He says, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, it was ordained, God did this, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The message of the sovereignty of God to all mankind and anyone listening ought to be, we have to humble ourselves before God because we are responsible for the sins we commit, for the wickedness we display, for the rebellion that we partake of. The worst response is, that's not fair. That's the worst thing we could say. Later in the book of Acts, after the apostles were released from initial confinement because of their preaching the gospel, this very interesting revelation is given to us in Acts 4.23 and following. Listen to this episode. When they were released they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, had said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? This is a quote from the passage that I read earlier from Psalm 115. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the powerful of earth, who thought they were executing their sovereignty and their power, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews, the Romans, they were only doing... What God's hand, and it says in the scriptures, had predestined to take place. People think predestination is a bad word. It's in the Bible. It's a word that describes how God does what he does. It's a word that describes God being God. A.W. Pink, in his seminal work, The Sovereignty of God, writes, But it might be objected that if God decreed that Judas should betray Christ and that the Jews and Gentiles should crucify him, They could not do otherwise, and therefore, they were not responsible for their intentions. The answer is, God had decreed that they should perform the acts they did, but in the actual perpetration of these deeds, they were justly guilty because their own purposes in the doing of them was evil only. Let it be emphatically said that God does not produce the sinful dispositions of any of his creatures, though he does restrain and direct them to the accomplishing of his own purposes. Hence, he is neither the author nor the approver of sin. This distinction was expressed by Augustine, and he quotes Augustine, who said, that men sin proceeds from themselves. That in sinning they perform this or that action is from the power of God, who divideth the darkness according to his pleasure." Proverbs 16, verse 9, the heart of man plans his way. The heart of man has his intentions. The heart of man is bent to do something, but the Lord establishes his steps. People act according to their desires, and this is what God holds them accountable for. At the same time, God uses them to exact his purposes. Assyria's purposes were wicked and sinful multiple actors with different motivations all converging on the same event, but one sovereign God in one sure plan. I want to conclude by having you consider with me how this truth of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man should am- impact our lives because it has many impacts. In our confessional statement, we have a great summary of the Bible's total teaching on this very topic. It's in the third chapter of the confession. In the first section, listen to what it says. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. God works it all according to his wisdom in amazing fashion, to work these things out and safeguard his character and his justice and his righteousness. How does this impact our lives? Whenever the subject of God's sovereignty arises, people get uneasy. But acknowledgement of this truth, this truth about God's sovereignty, will produce great spiritual fruit in our lives. Now, I absolutely know where some of you might be today, when you, if you're hearing this for the first time, or it's starting to hit you. Hopefully not just hit me what I'm saying, with what the Bible's saying. I remember being in that spot, and it was painful. And there's no way for you to initially feel good about this, and I get it. And any of us who've been through the process of studying Scripture and seeing this pattern of what God does and how he does it, it's, it's kind of a violent, it's a, it's a violent confrontation of our, our concept or our construction of God. And it's painful at first. And most people rather not address it. They just go on in their life living at a superficial level about what they think about God. But as you start to wrestle with it, the depth of your trust in God will grow as your awe for him grows. And as your realization of how little you are, and as we are humbled, God exalts us spiritually. Packer wrote, Not until we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, just trusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. Later in the same chapter of the Confession, it talks about how to handle this doctrine because mostly when people come in contact with folks who believe in the sovereignty of God, as we would as a confessionally, usually they think we're jerks because we kind of are when we first. It's the cage Calvinist stage where you just realize something about Scripture and you want everybody to know whether they want to hear it from you or not, and we hammer it, and, and people react more to us being jerks than to what we're saying. So we have to really examine how we embrace and proclaim the message of this. And I think the confessional writers knew this exact dynamic even back in in the 17th century. Because listen to how they say it. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election, so shall this doctrine, and here are the impacts that I'll address in a moment, so shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Now listen to how this unpacks. There are many ways that the truth of God's sovereignty should impact us. Number one. Knowing that God is absolutely sovereign bolsters our assurance that we are saved. If you trust in Christ, that is a gift from God. And if God has given you this gift and you rest upon Christ, he will not take it away. The sovereign God placed his affection upon you and he will finish the work that he has begun in you. In times of doubt and struggle, God's sovereignty should give you peace, security, and assurance. This is why Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Secondly, knowing that God is absolutely sovereign causes us to render praise, reverence, and admiration towards uh, towards God. His awesome power, when we recognize it, is inspiring and strengthening of us, and it makes us want to worship him. This is exactly what fueled David to say what we read in the, in the call to worship. When David, realizing, though everybody was calling him great, that no greatness came from himself. Confronted with God's sovereignty, he expresses praise in this way. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. See the sovereignty of God making David give this praise. And he closes that prayer by saying, And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Third, knowing that and acknowledging God's sovereignty will produce humility. It will produce humility in us and give us humility towards others. We won't stay jerks for long if we really grasp this concept. Who are we to have God's love upon us? That's humbling. Who am I? Who am I to be saved? Who are any of us to be saved? When we think of it in that light, We will never look down at somebody else in the church or anyone else for that matter. We'll be humbled. The sovereignty of God necessitates that we are completely dependent. We merit nothing before God. There is no better stance before God than a humble stance because God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. Fourth, knowing God's sovereignty and our responsibility motivates us to obey God's commands. We realize that we will be held accountable for obedience. If we are in Christ, truly in Christ, then we will want to obey him. God's sovereign work includes producing a desire for good works in us. Later in Philippians, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Fifth. Knowing God's sovereignty compels us, it compels us to proclaim the gospel near and far. In a time of terrible persecution, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, Acts thirteen. It was necessary, they said, that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The Jews wouldn't listen, so they just turned around and proclaimed it to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard it, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Nobody should be better evangelists than people who believe in the sovereignty of God. Nobody And if you're not evangelizing, if you're not proclaiming the gospel, then you don't know the sovereignty of God. You may not even know God. Six, knowing the sovereignty of God will help console us and comfort us when the many trials of this life come upon us. Job, the end of the book of Job, after all the trials and tribulations he went through, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted by someone who has undergone that suffering, saying, I know you could do all things. He is saying, it must be your will that I suffered this way because you could have stopped it and you didn't. So it means it's your will. And that's the honest truth about things, isn't it really? It's a scary thing when people say, well, I don't want a God who controls. So you want a God who could have done something, but didn't. That's not God. Finally, I leave you with Ephesians 1, verse 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ Jesus might be to the praise of his glory. Let's bow together as I close in prayer. O Father, uh, you are sovereign. We see you dimly now. But soon before your triumph, earth's every knee shall bow. With this glad hope before us, our faith springs forth anew. Our sovereign Lord and Savior, we trust and we worship you. Amen.